Welcome to 050. I'm your host, Bruce Bradley, founder of recycling company First Mile. This is our Green Impact podcast, where we meet guests creating solutions for a zero carbon world. 8 billion people live on this planet, but we grow enough food to feed 11 billion people, and yet millions still go hungry. We use billions of pieces of packaging to consume food in the name of preservation and convenience, but still millions of tons of food is wasted each year. In the UK, we throw away £19 billion worth of edible food every year, which would be enough to pay for free school meals for almost 20 years. In a generation, we have changed how we grow, cook and consume food. What's going on? Where did we go wrong? And what needs to change? To understand this, I am delighted to welcome Rosalind Rathhouse to this episode of Zero Five O. Rosalind is founder of Cookery School, and she knows what trends have changed, how to cook well, how to cook sustainably, and how to cook without waste. Welcome to the show, Rosalind. Thank you. Hi, Bruce. Lovely to be with you. Absolutely. Great to have you on the show. So why do we need to cook sustainably? Well, I think the message is finally starting to come home to a few people. After seeing the floods and the fires of this past summer, I think they've been terrifying. Seeing them on our screens, I think is beginning to make people realize that we need to take some sort of action. I think the problem is that there's a disconnect between seeing that and their daily actions. I think people think about, you know, plastic now because that's been publicized a lot. They see that as something they can do, but they don't connect with food and waste yet. And I think that's a huge, huge problem and something we try to promote. And how do you promote it then? Because there's sort of uh, increasingly there's a disconnect and we have very long supply chains of where food comes from. And we saw that with the horse meat scandal five or six years ago. And now we're seeing we're sort of running short of food because supply chains are disrupted. And is it because we're so removed physically and emotionally from food? And does cooking bring us closer to what we're doing? I think you've made a really good point. Yesterday, actually, I ran a class. I don't do a lot of teaching, but I had to stand in to do a beginner's class. And they were given some carrots. Some of them were fine and some of them were quite wonky and wobbly, in fact, because they were old. And I said, we're still going to use them. You're going to be stewing them. They'll taste absolutely perfect. And then I had some wonky carrots, actually, that I'd used last week on a corporate event with all sorts of shapes, funny shapes. And I showed them to them and I said, there's nothing wrong with these carrots. We're used to perfection and everything being the same size. That isn't how things grow. And they were fascinated by that. But what we run at Cookery School, we run a day course. It's a level two accredited course, and it's called Sustainable Kitchen. We've been running it for a few years now. We don't really run it for the public. We tried a few years ago, didn't move. So we've, of course, continued it because it's important to do. We run it for our professional course. We run it for our staff. We invite our suppliers to do it. And what it does is it takes people through sustainability, looking at the impact of what we do in the kitchen and what that impact is on greenhouse gases, carbon footprint, and all that sort of thing. 
We do actually, I know I don't like jargon at all, and at cookery school we don't use French jargon, or in fact we don't do anything just because that happens. We start everything from scratch. But in talking about sustainability, I think people are really nervous about the words around it as well. I think that worries them because it's jargon. So we actually start the day by giving them a game. We have cards match with pictures of all sorts of sustainable terms and the terms simplified, and they have to match the pictures and the terms. I can't believe how many people have asked us if they could have a copy of the cards to take home, please. What's the one that catches everybody out? They very, they, sometimes they've got to think quite hard, like recycled and recyclable, organic, it's just simple terms, methane, you know, phosphates, simple things that you understand them and you've got the terminology. It just makes understanding the principles that bit easier. I'll come on to that because I think it's a really important thing. But we start the class with that and then I do something new. And that is, I say to everyone, I want you, please, to choose a seed, any seed you like, because they come from all over the world. You can't believe we've had mangoes, bananas, rice, things you wouldn't even think about. I always take a carrot and I say, I want you to think of one single seed being planted in the ground. Whatever it is, you think of it in the place you want it to be, and I want you to plant it. Okay, then I want you to water it, and you see the seedling changing into a little plant. I want you to picture that going all the way through to maturity, whatever it is. And I want you to write that down. They just make bullet points. They get a sheet to say, this is what I want you to do. They then, I want you to go through it and track its life, what it does all the way through its life, from the watering it gets, everything. It might be in a greenhouse where it would have electricity to warm it. If you're doing tomatoes in a greenhouse, doesn't matter what it is. I'm totally unjudgmental because we come on to that later in the course and track it all the way from the time it's picked, packaged, sent to the warehouse, whatever. And then you pick it up for your car, all the air miles, all the car miles, whatever energy or resources have gone into it, I want you to track on your list. We then go through it until it lands in your kitchen and goes into your fridge, perhaps. And everyone in the group goes through what they've done and they all talk about and they're fascinating everyone hears what everyone else says and then what happens in your fridge of course everything is totally it's not just that carrot in your fridge it's had a journey from the time it's been planted to the time it's landed in your fridge and then you leave it lying in your fridge for a few weeks you go to your fridge and you've got this wobbly carrot all you do is you take it you pick it up put it in the bin and you think oh I've just thrown the carrot away but you haven't You've thrown this carrot with a history away. And that is such a strong image. And they all love that. We've had even chocolate people from Africa. They've spoken about all sorts of things. And I think that draws attention to your ingredients and how not one bit of them can be wasted. And then to go on to say, I don't know if you saw the film that Anthony Bourdain made called Waste. Yes. I'm sure you would have. Did you see the one part? And when I went in the next day to tell everyone in the office, when I first viewed it a few years ago, about the lettuce on a food mountain, that was such a strong image. And I told them that I made them guess how long it would take to, you know, disintegrate. And I asked them how long they thought. And everyone says the usual thing, three weeks, six months. Yes, I asked them the same question on the absolute beginners when we looked at the carrot. And they said a year. Oh, someone said a couple of years. I said, yeah. 
And then I told them how shocked I'd been 25 years because of the methane that doesn't allow things to disintegrate or decompose. And I think people don't know about that. No. I mean, my question on that really is that people don't understand things. And they is it because that we're not talking about it enough? Is it because we're overcomplicating it? Because one of the great, in, on the introduction to the cookery school on your website, I love the fact that you say, come here and we'll teach you how to cook in a robust way. We're not going to use buzzwords. We're not, uh, you use the term chefy. We're not chefy about things. And we, u- we don't use complicated gadgets in the kitchen. It's straightforward stuff. And I've met you many times before and, and you are very straight talking. And are we not being straight with ourselves around climate change? Is it complicated, therefore we don't understand it? Or could we make it a lot simpler? Are we complicating life around everything we do? Yes, I think we definitely are. And we're very off-putting. Before I tell you how we take it a bit further and how what I think we've got to do, one of the very important things, I think, is not to be holier than thou. I think there is a sort of a piousness about things when it comes to sustainability. And we are never judgmental. We take people through our journey. We've been sustainable since day one because I had a daughter who is an environmental psychologist. And even before then, she used to say when she was a teenager, mom, try and buy organic. It wasn't no one bought organic. She said, if enough people become bioorganic, It'll become a movement and you'll be able to get organic stuff, which is exactly what's happened. So we always take people through our journey at cookery school, which was starting the early days with only buying organic. We often couldn't get organic things, so we just didn't use them. Now we don't have that problem. Of course, it's local and seasonal that enhances all of that. But we never had that in the early days. So we've always done that. We stopped using plastic, I think. 16, 17, 18 years ago, people, I think, even thought we were slightly cranky because we kept putting out the same message, but it was the right message. Also, we've really watched what we've done very carefully over the years. So we use us as an example of how we've grown. And we always say it didn't happen overnight. And our message is to everyone always, whatever you do, the tiniest little changes you make, if we all make tiny changes, they become bigger changes. And I watch people nod when I say that. Last week, we did an event. We're doing corporate events at the moment. Goodness sake, coming back, because it's the worst 20 months I've ever known. I didn't know if you would survive. But one of the things that's really interesting that had happened before lockdown and is happening increasingly now is large corporates, and I did a few during lockdown, and multinationals, well-known ones, are coming to say, can we do something with our team on sustainability? So we've done sustainable groups on waste. We've just um, done normal ones where we cook food with them and we point out what the ingredients are. And there's plenty of opportunity to speak about the ingredients and why we're using the ingredients that we do. But the interesting thing on those sustainability ones is people are asking for them because they A, it's the right thing to do. And B, it's a good place to start talking about sustainability in the kitchen because of the impact of what our cooking habits, whether it's using resources or ingredients, have on greenhouse gases. And also, the other reason is that if they start in the kitchen, you can open the conversation. It's not happening. But when we do that and we say to people, every little bit that you all do, my final message is just make little changes. And as I said to you earlier, they will become bigger changes. That's how things develop rather like our gap. 
I watch people nodding at me as I'm talking. That's acceptable. But there's something very important, Bruce, because I am plain speaking, a very large restaurant chain asked if we would help them get some accreditations that we've done before, bit of a box ticking exercise. We don't do that any longer. We're not belonging to people that ask us to tick boxes, are holier than thou. It's not our thing. And if we could do some staff training, and I said, yes, we can do it all. I told them what we would do. What they really wanted was to get mainly some accreditation. And I said to them, I knew we wouldn't get the job, and I actually didn't care. It made me really angry. I think that our integrity is more important than getting a job. I know it doesn't make financial sense, but cookery school doesn't make financial sense. It's about bigger things. It's about we've got different ideas on what it's about. But what it was about, I said to them, I think that you can't just go into a kitchen and tell people to recycle your chefs, to recycle, to do this or to do that. These are the bins you use. Unless they, you have real buy-in and they understand what's happening, you're not going to get the effect. You won't achieve what you want to achieve. And you have to make people understand what the issues are that are at stake. And why are you asking them to recycle, to weigh their waste, to do whatever they're doing, to not turn on the salamanders as they come in, to not wrap everything in loads of plastic? These are all the chefy things. Not to, I did a, a thing of some kitchens, they were thawing fish in big bowls of water with water running over them. You don't have to do that. You don't have to put plastic over and over on things. You just need lids. Simple solutions. So you're saying, oh, is it overcomplicated? Yeah. If someone came in and said to them, this is what you have to do, then simple solutions, they would do it. But they've got to know why they're doing it. They've got to know that in the long run, by doing all the things, not wasting resources, they're actually going to be helping the environment and stopping the fires and the floods. And also, when large companies are doing it, I said to them, by investing, they weren't going to invest a lot, by actually Spending the time and the money to train your staff properly just doesn't have to be heavy. You're talking about a few hours or a day. You can do that. You're getting your money's doubling the value of your money because your own company will benefit from the understanding and the buy-in. But more than that, you are giving your staff a huge gift. And the gift you're giving them is the opportunity to understand what their own personal impact at home is on the environment. I knew they wouldn't buy it. I didn't care. I was outspoken. Um, I just think this is, and what they needed, and the word that I used was culture change. There has got to be a huge cultural change for companies to understand it. It's not just about only coming into our kitchen with the top teams and learning about how you can work in the kitchen. That does some have, a, have some effect. And hopefully the few hours they spend with us, they take something away. But it's not permeating through companies. And do you think that's the culture of the company or the culture of our society? Because we sort of go, you know, you go to a supermarket now and there's one aisle of fresh vegetables and then five aisles of ready meals. You go into a cafe to get a coffee. The default is put it in a paper cup with a plastic lid, not, you know, they should be asking you if you'd like to drink it in, not drink it out as a default. Absolutely. Well, I, of course, lay everything and I have for many years now at the feet of government. Why are we not educating people? I came to England in the 60s. We used to have government information videos. And brilliant on lung cancer and smoking in those days. We don't do anything like that. They don't have to be heavy, preachy things. They can be fun. They can be light. They can be chats. But they are 
teaching people. It's all about education. But haven't organisations like um, the Waste and Resources Action Programme and the Sustainable Restaurants Association, haven't they spent millions of pounds of government money on trying to get people to reduce food waste? And do you think those campaigns have been effective? No, I come to it as a teacher. I'm 78. I've been teaching since 1966. I've taught generations and thousands of people. And one of the things we're doing at the moment, it's a pilot. The last one's tomorrow. It hasn't been hugely successful because we haven't hit the presentation right. I didn't care about the presentation. It's too flat. And we're going to start to revamp it. We've been through the scheme and we're going to revamp the scheme. And it's going to start again in the new year. But what we've done is we have done 20 sessions, you can see them, of teaching kids how to cook once a week on a Wednesday. And it's teaching them how to cook. And what we have on them, we have a sustainability hint, we have a healthy hint, we have all sorts of things. But all they do is in one hour, we cook along. It's not cut out. It's not a quick reel. It's nothing snappy. It's just someone in the kitchen working with people at home. It worked for me as a formula during lockdown with people coming in to their own kitchens and cooking with me. And I thought that would work with kids. If we, I tried to do it during lockdown and I was too busy doing other things. So we started it last June and we've done 20 sessions where they do something. They've made macaroni, cheese, they've made a pizza, things kids like eating. This is very interesting because thankfully the children, the young generation, the current generation with Greta Thunberg are actually going on climate strike and saying we need to make a difference. But then are they then going and eating ready meals and junk food? And is the connection there? I was hoping that this thing would be take off. We're hoping we can get some backing for it next year and we can try and teach children to cook at home, not eat ready meals, not eat lots of salt and sugar, but also learn using an oven. Only use your oven if it's full. Use a hob because you get direct heat, all that sort of thing. And hopefully that will happen, but there's a total disconnect. I'm going to just a side step for a moment to say I was rather excited in 2019 we were approached because the government were going to run a waste, a whole series on waste. I don't know if you knew about that. No. Food waste. It was so impressive. Yeah. We were sitting, we were on the round table, round sitting on the table, whatever it's called. And we were, people that were involved were being prepared, a lot of people. They were really, it was impressive. This is the language we want you to use. This is, these are the logos you can use. This is what we want you to say. We're not talking about food waste. We don't want to talk about food waste. We want to talk about before you waste food and how you prevent that. And it was as, really looked as if it was going to be a fantastic campaign. Then, of course, there was Brexit and there were the elections. So each time one of those things came on, it was government that were doing it. They just moved it forward. And I think the last time they moved it forward was in February or March 2020. Well, the rest history. But that would have been absolutely fantastic and exactly what was needed because it would have started a conversation. And that conversation is so, so badly needed. I'd be interested to get your perspective because you've been teaching and cooking and making food for over 50 years. But I remember when in the early 80s, because my dad has a dairy farm up at Wensidale, and in the 80s, 70s and 80s, you were allowed to sell unpasteurized milk at the gate. And there was, there was some a campsite at the road and this family used to come every day and buy a few pints of milk and take it back to their campsite. And on the last day, they came and they said, well, we'd love the milk and we know it's really fresh because we see the tanker delivering it every day. 
and they thought the tanker that was coming to collect the milk and take it to the creamery was actually delivering it for them to consume. <laughs> so I think this disconnect has probably been going on for quite some time. But I, I'd be really interested to get your sort of perspective over half a century of cooking. I mean, you used to cook pies for the Orient Express. I suspect they weren't going out in plastic trays. In the same way that sort of carbon emissions have accelerated in the last 50 years, has our disconnect with nature and food and growing things accelerated? Absolutely. Well, you've got me on a hobby horse because I can remember 70 years ago what things were like. I just grew up in South Africa. And I came to London in the 60s, and the change was dramatic. I actually sent Sainsbury's a photograph a year or two ago. One of my grandchildren came across in one of our albums. My husband was a great album person. And the picture of the two of us looking very 60s, having arrived in London, and there was a new supermarket. It was the first supermarket we knew of, other than the Safeway, which was American, that no one really used. Posh people in Chelsea used it, but no one else really. And there was this wonderful Sainsbury supermarket. And there's a photograph of us standing outside it. And above our heads, there's a bag hanging. It wasn't very sophisticated the way they marketed it. A white paper bag with a Sainsbury's orange logo. And we were both holding two Sainsbury's white, huge paper bags with the orange logo, very strong paper. And we were both holding them. And that was in the 60s paper at Sainsbury's. You didn't get anything else. The, we used to get something called a minute steak. We had no money. We were students. I was supporting us. And that was our weekly treat. It was a piece of steak that was hammered out so thin. And as you cooked it, it shrunk. But that was our weekly steak fix. We'd grown up with meat. And that came covered in plastic in a, in a, in a sort of little tray. And that plastic didn't cling it just went over. By the time you got it home, the plastic had come off the meat. But that was my first time I actually remember seeing plastic covering anything. That was in 1966. And since then, it was slow, but you've watched this happening, growing more and more and more. We didn't know what plastics were or foil. Yeah. And it's just changed so rapidly now and accelerated away from things. So when you used to make pies for, uh, I think you made Sainsbury's as well, but the Orient Express, were they, were they sent out in boxes or paper bags or how were they delivered? We used to deliver them on the baking tray. Oh, no, in a plastic tray. I'd forgotten that. Huge plastic trays were the ones that they delivered bread in because they were cold at that stage. They were cold raised pie and they would just be covered with tea towels. Yeah. And then you bring those back. Amazing. So you said a few minutes ago, the politics are wrong. And I'm interested in this because we have also talked about sort of personal behavior. And it seems to me there's sort of three powers at play, which we've got big corporations, we've got individuals, and there's quite a battle going on. And I think it's very unproductive where we've got sort of vegetarians saying that you're not, or vegans saying you're not a real environmentalist unless you're vegan and vegetarians say you shouldn't eat meat. And there's quite a sort of um, polarized debate around behavior. And not just about diet or whether you drive an electric car or not. And then big corporations and then politics. And it seems to me we're, we're very much focused on individual action and individual behavior, where it feels to me like the politicians and the big companies are slightly getting off the hook here because everyone's, and they're probably thinking this is brilliant because everyone's arguing with each other about what we should do as individuals rather than 
getting the politicians to sort it out or getting these big corporations who are responsible for a huge chunk of greenhouse gases to clean up their act? And how do we resolve those sort of um, different tensions and maybe politics? I remember saying once at some meeting where someone was doing, there were some noble ideas. And I said, I think they're brilliant, but they're coming from the bottom up. I think they've got to come from the bottom up. But I believe that all the things we're talking about should be dictated by government. One of the things I remember very clearly was years ago when they started asking us to recycle. We'd never recycled in England. We were behind everyone else in that. And no one could recycle. Terrifying. And then a few local authorities started going through people's bins. And they were finding them. I think it was 50 quid. And it got a lot of publicity. And all of a sudden, we all became recyclers because no one wanted that. It was crude recycling. But the point I was making is we suddenly learned very quickly how to recycle. When they started introducing 5P on a plastic bag, people suddenly could stop using plastic bags. Where did that come from? The top. How does that fit? I think that's right. And we've seen some great changes. But how does that fit with Boris saying a couple of weeks ago that recycling is a complete waste of time and we shouldn't be doing it? No one takes him up on it, really, in a big way. No one actually really says this isn't true. You know, why isn't the, what, why the media silence? They do that as a minor thing. It's major. He's going to be at COP26. And there's this hypocrisy. On the one hand, he's saying recycling's rubbish. He's going to open talking about reopening coal mines and coal mine. And he's going to put on a little virtuous face, telling everyone, doing a bit of buffoonery, which is the way he acts to get people on side. And there's such hypocrisy. And that's what's upsetting. It's about people not taking it seriously enough. And unfortunately, I think a lot of it comes from where corporations are. They're not putting their money where their mouths are. And I think that's where one's got to actually, where I talk about the culture change, has to happen at all levels. The interesting thing is when we run our sustainable kitchen day, we have people of all ages doing it. And I go through them. I haven't got one to show you, the handbook that gets marked. And when I go through them and mark the questions, because it's accredited, it's got to be written as well. There's a practical component that really hits home. They have to go out and buy ingredients and cook them. So they have to list what they've bought and the reasons for buying them and why they've, what they've cooked and the reasons for cooking them. But when I mark them, it's the kids, the youngsters that are in the group that just get it. They just get it. Other people battle and it just flows really easily with them. So it's coming from, as you said earlier on, kids are really engaging with it, but their message isn't being heard either. And there's a disconnect, as you said, between what they eat and what they think. And then we haven't got the adults, in particular the politicians, supporting them and they're being let down. Can I just add something? I think that this thing that I feel so strongly about, about kids not learning to cook at school these days. Yeah, if you do food technology, the GCSE, some schools do a bit of cooking. But unless you choose food tech, which is dry and boring, it's project-based, you mark. That's, there should be a subject called cooking. It's plain and simple from the time they're five. At a simple level, an hour or so a week, 
If you do that, I once worked it out, you'd have, I can't remember how many months of cooking in your school life by the time you were 15. If you managed to get a week of cooking in from the time you're 15 over your school life, you'd be leaving cooking. That's how this whole national cooking program that we're doing came about. But if kids were taught to cook, the disconnect between ready meals and being able to cook at home would also close. And it seems to be, I mean, I don't think anybody taught me to cook and I love cooking and just sort of watched you know, my mum and dad cooking, but there just seems to be this idea that it's really complicated and we have to have it sort of either a ready meal or we have to have a recipe box where everything sort of is like metered out in small containers. Whereas actually follow a recipe as a guide. You don't need to follow it scientifically bit by bit and, you know, see what happens. If it tastes good, success. <laughs> but no one has that confidence. You only get that confidence, Bruce, if you cook like you have. If you're a novice yesterday, watching these absolute beginners cooking and the things that they do, they take nothing for granted. You answer every question about everything they do. And I fear that all the stuff on television where chefs chop at a rate and everything chefy, if you can't chop like a chef, you can't cook like a chef. That's rubbish. And the other thing that really bugs me on television is watching, I don't have time to watch a lot, but when I do watch cookery programs, even on the BBC, they allow people, I did write to them, I didn't get a response a little while ago. I do write emails of complaint when I, something really bugs me. Why are they, when they're putting food, showing the nation what they should be doing, how can they have people covering things with plastic? On television, no, plastic's a no-no. You don't need it. Use a plate. Exactly what we do. We use a plate. Exactly. So you've been doing this for a long, long time and a huge amount of knowledge. What would success look like to you, Rosalind? And what's the biggest hurdle to getting there? So Our biggest hurdle is we've got a very big message and we know we're leaders in what we do. Unfortunately, we're too small and we don't have a big enough team to yell loudly enough. If we were a multinational, we'd be putting out a big message. If we had a lot of money behind us, we'd put out the big message. And we are small. We're a David. We can't take on the Goliaths all the time. We don't have the time. But if we did, our message about simplicity, learning how to do it, learning, understanding it would just be an answer. You know, that is what people really should be doing. They should be understanding how simple it is to achieve simple, like not wasting food and knowing what to do with leftovers, how delicious they are and why you're doing it. And also understanding the use of resources. Just so simple. And what's, what's the key message for listeners? What can they do to help you succeed? Is it talking more about it or is it getting out there and cooking? What, what should we all be doing? Get out and cook. We put out things all the time on tips that you can do. Things like how the most wasted things, as you know, are milk, bread, millions of gallons, millions of slices, bread, bananas, potatoes, what you can do with them. We've got a whole lot of recipes. I did something a few weeks ago for a small group of trainees. It was a very quick, it was about an hour and a half, two hour session. And we spoke about the things that are wasted, what you could do with them. And it was really interesting. I haven't had time to write to a bread manufacturer. But one of the guys actually said, when they heard that, they said, on the packets, because they buy packets of bread, not artisan bread, why don't bread suppliers, manufacturers, put onto their packets ways of dealing with waste bread? Put recipes for bread and butter pudding, sweet ones, savory ones, 
breadcrumbs, the things you can do. I mean, write to them and say, why don't you do that? Why don't you do that? Because I thought it was so brilliant. But simple solutions that people come up with when you all start brainstorming. Absolutely. I think probably don't do it because they're trying to sell more bread. So what's coming up that you're most excited about, Rosalind, in the next uh, sort of year? We've obviously got COP26, which has probably happened when this goes out. But what's happening that you're going to be super excited about? Well, sustainability is very big on our agenda. Before we lock down, we were actually going to go to a, a huge third world country. We were on the verge of leaving. We even knew where we were staying. And we were going to advise a huge educational authority on how to teach their cooks, their chefs on their training courses with 130,000 people, how to be sustainable. It was an irony to me that we were going abroad and being paid a huge amount of money to do this, whereas at home, here we are sitting with the knowledge and no one's using us. So what we intend doing is using that. We're actually going to try and go out and do some sustainability training, not the training that anyone else offers, training at a sensible, personal level. So people can actually, and we have a little logo that has a tick and it says sustainability trained. And so that people know if they've done our training, there's a culture change and in their organization, and they'll, we hope that that will do something. But it's not highfalutin. It's simple. It's straightforward. And it resonates. Brilliant. That sounds fantastic. So we get to sort of some of our more uh, standard questions now for the podcast. And actually, one of them is, what is your favorite eco product or gadget? But I'm going to change that and ask you, because I think you're not big on kitchen gadgets. But if every kitchen should have something, what is the item that we should all have for our kitchen? I used to say that it was a pair of scissors. I love my garlic press. When I see everyone chopping garlic, I just take the garlic and I put it into a press. You know, simple things like that. A decent knife, the usual things. And really, if you've got basic things, which we've had to use. I was very surprised when I was doing all the stuff during lockdowns, and I was doing a lot, looking into people's kitchens, how simple kitchens are how some people didn't have more than two saucepans. If you wanted to use three saucepans, they had to go and wash one quickly. I think whilst we want to say don't use electric things, I think a hand blender is brilliant because you can make lovely smooth soups, you can make aiolis, mayonnaise, all sorts of things like that, inexpensive. And I do think if you use short, sharp electrical appliances, they do help. But I think something that is really useful is a pressure cooker. Saves energy. I'm told, I haven't checked up on it, I've been told that Fidel Castro bought a lot of pressure cookers in his day, gave them to people across the country because it cut the electricity, so it brought the electricity use down low. And much faster as well. Yeah. I, I was listening to a cookery, uh, a chef on, on the radio years ago, and I had a lovely story about how whenever they made a ham, a leg of ham, they always broke the leg bone and boiled it. And the chef asked his mother, and she said, well, we've always done it. My grandmother told me how to do it. And the grandmother was still alive. And so he said, why do you break the bone? Is it to get more flavor and all the rest of it? And she said, no, that was the only way it would fit into the saucepan. And, you know, people didn't have many utensils. No, and I think, I think also, I think we can't say there's something very important. We can't say in this country, we buy seasonal, local, and all that sort of thing. We love olive oil. We love oranges and lemons. You can't say stop using them. You've just been sensible. You're not bringing in strawberries in the middle of winter. Likewise, I think you can't say to people, stop using electricity. 
I think what you're saying is don't use electricity wastefully or your resources wastefully, but they make life so much easier and we are living in 2021. Yeah. And if you could just ask people to do one thing to help tackle climate change, what would that be? It would be watch how you shop because it starts with the shopping. Perfect. And finally, Rosalind, it's been amazingly interesting. If you could put one thing into the first mile Planet Saver Hall of Fame, what would it be? We're making a little collection. It would be the rolls of plastic that kitchens are still using, just they're using it in excess still. Excellent. And then we could look back in 50 years' time and say, wow, I can't believe you used to use so much of that stuff. Exactly, exactly. Brilliant. It's been an absolute pleasure, Rosalind, having you on the podcast. So much knowledge around cooking and how we can avoid all of that crazy food waste. Just for our listeners, how do they find the Cookery School? What's your website? It's Cookery School at Little Portland Street. Google that and they'll find you. Excellent. And you can do individual courses, corporate courses, courses for chefs, anybody that wants to come and learn how to cook sustainably and easy and children. And kids, very, very important. We ask parents if they want to. We only allow two or three on in an adult class, but we love having kids coming into adult classes because they're cooking along with an adult, might be a parent, a friend, and that gets them on their cooking journey. And that's so important. Brilliant. It's been amazing having you on the show, Rosalind, and um, thanks so much for your time and uh, being a guest on Zero Five O. Thank you. Thanks, Gru. And good luck with the Zero Five O. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. I'm Bruce Bratley, and you've been listening to Zero Five O, where we meet remarkable people creating solutions for a zero carbon world. Keep listening to all episodes on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Zero Five O.